Hey, how not to raise a serial killer, listeners. It's Michelle Ward. I want to share something special this week, a full episode of my other true crime podcast, Mind of a Monster. On the latest season, I investigate Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. It's a deep dive into how two wildly different serial killers could be so prolific around the same time in the same city. If you like this episode, go subscribe to Mind of a Monster wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The victims are typically young women, many of them runaways and prostitutes. The sheer number of murders raises suspicion that a serial killer is at work. The mountains of Washington offer some excellent terrain for hiding bodies. You're not finding a large number of bodies. And he said to us, like, why would I change the way that I kill these women? Because it was working. He was a handsome looking guy and very gregarious. The girls liked him. I had a problem with killing killing women back then. You think of that as an illness? I don't know if it was an illness or just, uh, I just mm-hmm. wanted to kill them. In our last season of the Mind of a Monster podcast, I posed some difficult questions to those closely associated with the Hillside Strangler and Night Stalker murders, three serial killers who wreaked havoc in California during the early 70s. Now, this season, we look north to King County, Washington State. This is where two of the most notorious serial killers in American history began their reigns of terror. Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway. Both used deception to prey on young women, using the vast terrain to dump their bodies. And they did it almost 100 times between them, maybe more. How is this possible? As we have seen in our previous seasons, serial killers tend to get caught soon after the number of victims reaches double digits. But not here. Not with these two. And I want to know why. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Season 3, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer, Episode 1, One Serial Killer Follows Another. Washington State's biggest city, Seattle, is at the heart of King County, and is as picturesque as it gets. A beautiful bay surrounded by stunning mountains, lakes, and dense forest. It's hard to imagine how such an idyllic location could give rise to not one, but two prolific serial killers. To get a feel for the place, I talked to 27-year Seattle PD veteran and homicide detective, Rolf Norton. Rolf, tell us what it was like growing up in the Pacific Northwest, particularly the Seattle area. In the 70s and 80s, the Pacific Northwest and Seattle were kind of off the radar. Seattle was a big city and we had the World's Fair here in the, in the 60s, but I think the rest of the country looked at this area as being uh, part of the Alaska. The suburbs were very undeveloped, it was more country and, and farm-like, and there was a kind of an innocence uh, about this location, but at the same time, there were some dark things going on in, in the background. Today, Seattle is synonymous with some of the biggest and most prosperous companies in America. Microsoft and Amazon are headquartered in the city. But at the dawn of the 1970s, those tech companies didn't exist. The county is reliant on Boeing for tens of thousands of jobs, 
And by 1971, the Boeing bust has put 86,000 workers on the street in three years. I pick up with former King County Sheriff's Office Chief of Investigations, Faye Brooks, about what it was like at the time. It's different than it is now. In the 70s and 80s, you know, people were, were much more trusting. I mean, I remember when I first uh, got to college in, in Bellingham, Washington, we hitchhiked all the time and didn't think anything of it. That was what the, the culture was back then. It sounds like a place of extremes. Industrial urban areas manufacturing airplanes right up against rural farmland, forests, and wide open space. I catch up with New York Times bestseller and author of Ted and Anne, Rebecca Morris, to ask how women fit into this world of extremes. Tell us who you are and what your relationship is to the Ted Bundy case. Well, I'm Rebecca Morris. I live in Seattle. I grew up in Oregon. I didn't know that I was going to become a true crime author. I was one of the earliest women in radio and television on the West Coast in Portland, and uh, so got my start there. I was researching a story for the Seattle Times, and I found this case about an eight-year-old Tacoma, Washington girl who had vanished in 1961. There was the myth that she might have been Ted Bundy's first victim when he was 14 years old. That's what drew me into true crime writing. You've hit on something that really resonates. There's a strong belief that scores of Bundy and Ridgway victims have never been identified. I want to bring it back, though. What's Washington state like for women in the 70s? It was a, a time of real opportunity for young women because of women's liberation and it was a time when women were going to law school and medical school and universities in record numbers, and it was safe. It was a safe time. It was safe to be walking on campuses at night. It was just a time when everything seemed possible. Hearing about the carefree environment and positive changes for women makes Ted Bundy's evil intrusion even more upsetting. To understand the climate of fear that Bundy and Ridgeway brought to King County, I have to start at ground zero, the disappearance of co-ed student Linda Ann Healy in February of 1974. Linda lived here in this greenhouse in the university district along with five other university students. She was last seen here Thursday evening about 12 o'clock. We have very few leads in the disappearance of Linda Healy. We have not ruled out any case of foul play here. However, the room was very neat. There was no signs of foul play in the room except some blood in the pillow and head area on the sheets of uh, Linda's bed. Linda's disappearance is completely out of character. A dedicated, hard-working psychology major, and she gives the morning ski report for a local radio station. Police interviews and searches go nowhere, and the case goes cold. Over the next few months, five more young female students go missing. Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, Brenda Ball, Kathy Parks, and Georgian Hawkins all vanish without a trace, walking alone after dark. Six disappearances in five months. This is uncharted territory in the Pacific Northwest. Police and public alike don't know what to do. Not a single body has been found, and people are scared. But it's about to get worse. In July 1974, 
Bundy takes things to a whole new level. But with the disappearance of the Otta and the Naslin girls on the same day from the same state park came the first indications that a male subject was involved. There were 40,000 people out here on that day, and some of them recall that Janice Ott had been asked by a good-looking young man wearing an arm cast to help her load his sailboat on the car in the parking lot beyond. I remember when law enforcement was looking for somebody named Ted because when he abducted two young women, from Lake Sammamish in 1974, he actually said his name to some young women at the park. He said, I'm Ted. The disappearances happen without a fight or an argument. A handsome man named Ted is King County law enforcement's first big break in the case, and their last. I want to know what made him so brazen. How did he know he would get away with these vile crimes in broad daylight among 40,000 witnesses? Rebecca Morris continues. Ted was attractive and educated and, you know, he posed, but he could be charismatic. And young women were interested in him. He picked college students, almost all of them were college co-eds. And very rarely did he go into a building. He very much operated near his VW, luring a girl into his car to help him with something. Ah, the arm cast at Lake Sammamish and asking girls to help load his boat onto the car. Is that what you mean by luring a girl to help him with something? Yes, crutches and plaster pairs because he would wear a fake cast on his arm to, you know, he learned that in psychology class at the University of Washington. If you look vulnerable, people will stop and help you. And he was a psychology major. <laughs> In his final interviews before being executed, Ted Bundy chillingly talked about using one of these deceptions to appear vulnerable and lure a victim to his car. This clip is from that final interview. I can't remember what day or what night of the week it was. Thursday night, I believe, I don't know. 11 to 12, probably closer to 12 o'clock. I was in the alleyway. Uh, I was <sighs> moving up the alley using a, uh, a briefcase and some crutches. And the young woman walked down. I saw, saw her round the, the north end of the block into the alley and stop for a moment and then keep on walking down the alley toward me. And about halfway down the block, I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase, which she did and we walked back up the alley. Across the street, turned right on the sidewalk. Midway in the block, there used to be a you know, one of those parking lots they used to make out of burned down houses in that area. So it's a parking lot there, dirt, surface, no lights, and my car was parked there. The idea of eight young women disappearing in the same city without a trace is hard to believe now. So much of what life was like in the 70s is the same today. We drive cars on the same roads, we watch TV in the evening, we get takeout food, but technology has changed the way we do all of these things. I asked Seattle PD homicide detective Rolf Norton, what's the fundamental difference that makes these killing sprees so hard to wrap your head around now? The one technology that I think has changed investigation more than anything else is the proliferation of video cameras and the availability of video and how it is the fulcrum of nearly 
every homicide that we investigate now, especially ones that occurred outside in urban areas. You know, you look at Greenver Killer, you look at Ted Bundy, they both would have been on video coming and going and leaving and going. And uh, we would have had video, you know, within hours of responding to a crime scene. And that's what we see today. You are going to be seen. If the incident is not captured, you are going to be seen either coming or going. Oh, that's such an excellent point. And we also have videos on all of our front doors now with the doorbell apps. Everything seems to be recorded. Yeah, I think about this specifically with Bundy. Just a few weeks ago, we had a burglar in the University District neighborhood that was trying to break into several houses on the same night, probably somebody in crisis. But within one hour of the police response, we had all these door videos. But back in the 70s and 80s, this technology wasn't available like it is now. And Bundy and Ridgeway weren't stealing, they were killing. Yeah, for sure. The word is that both you and Seattle police are proceeding on the assumption that there are more bodies out here, that perhaps maybe even all of the girls might be here. Is that a heroic assumption? Well, that probably is. We keep finding more and more every day. You, you get in that woods and you just don't know what's in there. It's so thick, so overgrown with bushes that uh, you could find anything, you know, a couple hours from now or five minutes from now. It doesn't matter. As Seattle's summer of fear in 1974 cools, skeletal remains are found in woods near Issaquah on September 7th. For police and King County public, the discoveries confirm their worst fears. Two bodies are identified as Janice Ott and Denise Nasland from Lake Sammamish State Park. The third is only partial remains of Georgianne Hawkins, who vanished from the alley behind her sorority house. No longer just a case of girls gone missing. It's confirmed. They're being taken, killed, stripped, and the bodies are being mutilated. I asked Rebecca Morris how attitudes changed at the time. When the abductions at Lake Sammamish occurred in the summer of 1974, I would have still been a reporter in Portland. We were becoming aware that there were killers working the Seattle to Oregon highway route. And knowing that that's also about the time when I was in my car in downtown Portland, stopped at a street sign, and somebody tried to get in my car. That's when I learned to lock my car doors before I ever left my street or my garage. And to this day, no matter what, I, I lock my car doors. I also had an acquaintance who pulled into a gas station. In Washington, we pump our own gas, but in Oregon, you don't. And the attendant said to her, would you, you need to come inside? There's something wrong with your credit card. And she went inside and he said, there's a man in your back seat. And may have saved her life that day. So. You know, those things were beginning to be shared and kind of known about. In Seattle, just as suddenly as the abduction started, they stopped again. Unbeknownst to the citizens of King County, Ted Bundy has accepted a place to study at law school in Salt Lake City, Utah. Will a fresh start in a new state quell Ted's urge to kill? Or will a new city with no fear mean a blank canvas to start all over again? To get a picture of Ted's mindset arriving in Utah, I talked to Larry Anderson, who welcomed him into his group of Mormon friends. I met Bundy when I was 24, 20, yeah, 23, 24. I was a member of a University of Utah 
student church ward. And at the time, my roommate were also what you would call at that time, stake missionaries. Got it. Okay, so tell me more about how you met him. You're a stake missionary? So in a stake, there would have been a thousand University of Utah students. And we were called to be stake missionaries. So we would preach or teach people in all of those different student wards, which in Salt Lake City covered all of the upper avenues, which included where Ted lived, but we didn't know Ted at the time. We had decided to have a, uh, this will sound silly to anybody who's not a Mormon, but a door knock Saturday to find all of our inactive students that weren't coming to church. Mm. And we used our stake missionaries to do that. There were 10 of us and four of those were sisters, but sisters are not allowed to teach a single man. Right. And they knocked on Bundy's door and he invited him in and wanted to hear more about the church. They immediately came to turn Ted over to us because they couldn't teach him. And that's how we met Ted Bundy. And so we began to teach him missionary lessons about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he showed an intense interest. Really? Do you think we it was wouldn't sincere? Have kept teaching him. Well, now that I'm 72 and know Ted Bundy's background, I would say it was most likely a scam on his side. But back then, we took him very serious. He studied, he read the Book of Mormon, he prayed with us. He had all the answers to our questions when we would meet the second time or third time. And he couldn't have done that if he hadn't have been studying. What could he have gotten out of this? You know, psychopaths like Ted Bundy are incredibly goal-driven people. And if he wasn't sincere, now that we know more about him, we know he probably wasn't. What do you think was his goal? Well, again, looking back, I firmly believe that his role was anonymity and to get into a group of single people. I mean, we were all single. No one married could go to these Mormon wards. You had to be single and a student at the University of Utah. And in a Mormon ward, there were always more women than guys. Always. Wow. I mean, you have no idea you're giving him the perfect cover and maybe even introducing him to victims. It is so deceitful. But you're all friends, so tell me about your good memories with Ted Bundy. I must tell you, um, I have no bad memories. Um, Ted was a very gregarious, friendly, outgoing, gourmet cook, very friendly to us, a jokester, very articulate took part in all of our parties and dinners and get-togethers. And when you're a single Mormon guy looking for a wife, you have a lot of parties where you ask a lot of girls. Mm. And so we had this big house up in the avenues of Salt Lake City. There were five of us that lived in that house. Every one of them were returned Mormon missionaries. And we had parties every week where we invited different girls. And once we met Ted, Ted was part of all that. Was he unusual? Did he behave differently from the other gentlemen? No, no, in fact, he was a handsome looking guy. The girls liked him. Was he ever inappropriate with them? No, not, unless they never told us. And I, I believe they would have told us. I mean, you're, you're talking a bunch of religious females, you know, who probably didn't mess around, if you know what I mean. And if he would have been inappropriate to any of them, I'm sure we would have known. 
Listening to Larry describe the Ted Bundy he knew in Salt Lake City, the picture he paints is of a flamboyant, believable actor. Ted seems able to deceive a room full of people, week in, week out, at Larry's parties. But keeping up an act has got to be hard work. I want to know if Ted's mask ever slipped. Did he give Larry any hint he wasn't who he seemed to be? Are there any stories that stood out for you when you were spending all this time with him? Ted and I did a lot together, and we had decided to go snow skiing in Vail, Colorado. And he was supposed to pick me up. I was standing on the curb of our house in 11th Avenue, and he drove up in his Volkswagen and said, Larry, I just want some time alone. Can I bug off? I'll just go alone. So he uninvited me to go. I didn't go. And of course, history tells us that that's when he killed a couple girls over in Colorado. On March 15, 1975, Julie Cunningham, a ski instructor in Vail, Colorado, heads down to a local tavern to meet her roommate who is already out for the night. Julie is never seen again. And along with Karen Campbell and Denise Oliverson, makes up a trio of murders Bundy commits on his road trips into Colorado. Has hindsight left Larry with any other haunting experiences of Ted Bundy? Well, when the newspapers started to publish about the murders up in Washington State, and then there were a couple incidents here in Utah, the Salt Lake Tribune and the Deseret News published a composite picture of what they felt the Ted murderer looked like. And they got that composite picture from the young lady who escaped out of Ted's Volkswagen here in Utah. We had a big dinner party, probably the week they published that paper, and it was in Ted's apartment. So after dinner, there must have been six of us probably. We were being macho, talking about what we would do to this Ted guy if we caught him. Oh my gosh. And we took the composite picture and we held it up to the side of each one of us and then passed it around the room. And we laughed and thought it was so funny that one of my boyhood friends, his first name was Alan, we thought it looked just like Alan. You thought it looked like Alan? Yes. It it, it didn't look like me. It didn't look like Doug or Barry. It looked like Alan. It did not look like Ted. And it still doesn't look like Ted. When you look at that composite picture, you don't see Ted Bundy. I don't. No, you see Alan. That's crazy. Yeah. And so we got laughing about the horrible things we would do to this guy if we caught him. And Bundy said, and this is almost a verbal quote, even after all of these years, I know how a guy would get away with this. And so a discussion erupted about, okay, Ted, how would a guy do it? And he said, I served on the governor's crime commission in the state of Washington. And we discovered that if a criminal kidnapped a girl in one city or county, disposed of her clothing in a second or third, murdered her in a different one, and put her body in a fourth one, that none of those county police or city police or state police communicated with each other. So that's how someone could get away with them. Oh my gosh. Almost as soon as he arrives in Utah, young women begin to go missing around Salt Lake City and in neighboring Colorado. Ten more women are brutally murdered 
before a chance encounter brings his second killing spree to an end. On August 16, 1975, Utah Highway Patrol Trooper Robert Hayward is sitting in his cruiser finishing paperwork outside his home at 3 a.m. He notices Bundy's VW Bug drive by, but thinks nothing of it until a few minutes later when he's called for assistance over the radio. Hayward takes a wrong turn on the way to the incident and stumbles across the VW again, parked outside a neighbor's house. Hayward knows that his neighbors are on vacation, but their teenage daughters are home alone. The VW takes off, and after a brief chase, is pulled over for evading police. The driver is Ted Bundy. The discovery of handcuffs, a ski mask, a crowbar, and an ice pick in his car arouses enough suspicion to land him in jail as a suspected burglar. When Theodore Bundy was arrested in Salt Lake City in August of 1975, it seemed like a minor story. He'd been driving erratically and trying to elude a policeman. But his Volkswagen Beetle jogged some memories. A Volkswagen had been reported at the scene of some mysterious disappearances in Washington State the year before. Bundy lived in Washington until late 1974, building a promising career in politics. At the same time he came to law school in Salt Lake City, young ladies began to disappear in Utah. In all, there were at least a half a dozen cases in Washington and five in Utah. All of the victims were young, pretty, dark-haired women. Finally behind bars, pieces of the puzzle begin falling into place for law enforcement. They start to link him to the killings in Colorado and, crucially, to an attempted kidnapping in Salt Lake City. His back against the wall, he calls his best friend in Utah for help. So I get a phone call from Ted. I'm at my office and he says, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I said, okay. He said, I'm in the county jail. They've arrested me thinking I'm the Ted murderer. And I started to laugh. I said, come on, Bundy. He says, no, I'm really in the county jail. And I said, okay. He said, I need you to smuggle some money into me. Now this is gonna make me look very stupid, but it's the truth. And he said, I need you to go get some $5 bills and wet them and roll them up as tight as you can and put them around the inside of your cheek, between your cheek and your teeth, and come down to the jail. I've put you on my list. And they're gonna inspect you, and you're gonna open your mouth, they won't see that money that are between your teeth and your lips, because they won't pull your lips back. And I did that. Wow, it worked? Oh, sure. It's September 1975. Ted Bundy is in jail. Back in King County, the second of our two serial killers is also going through a life-changing event. Gary Ridgway welcomes a son into the world. Age 26, Gary is now on his second marriage after serving in the Navy during the Vietnam War. A seemingly all-American guy flying under the radar, no one in America has any idea of the amount of devastation he is about to unleash. Back to Utah, and Ted Bundy's situation is going from bad to worse. Harold DeRanch picks him out of a police lineup as the man who tried to kidnap her from a shopping mall almost a year earlier. Fighting her way out of his VW Beetle, Carol not only escapes near certain death, she becomes the perfect witness. At trial, Bundy is convicted of aggravated kidnapping and gets a 1-15 to 15 year jail sentence. He arrives at a Utah State Prison on March 1, 1976. I asked Larry Anderson if this is where he draws a line through his friendship with Ted. Back then, we still think he's innocent. 
and I'm on his visitors list. And I was moving to Southern California. And this will be chilling to somebody like you. Most chilling to me to this very day. I was put in a room with Ted Bundy in the maximum security section of the Utah State Prison. It was all steel. It had rivets where they had put the steel plates together in the room. There was a uh, steel picnic table in the middle of the room. And I sat on one side of the table and Ted on the other. Mm. And there was no wall, you know, no no telephone like you see in the movies. I reached over and hugged him when I got there. And we got talking. And I said, Ted, are you guilty? Mm. He said, hell no. And then he said, by the way, I don't want you to turn around, but right behind your head in the upper part of the ceiling of this room is a vent. And I have learned that the prisoners built this section of the prison or helped build it. And I know that if I lost enough weight, this is whispers basically to my ear, I could crawl out that vent and, and escape from prison. I never told the warden or anybody about that conversation because I thought Ted Bundy was innocent. While Bundy sits in jail, authorities in Aspen, Colorado add to his troubles, now bringing charges of murder against him. It looks like the end of the road for Ted Bundy, but he has other ideas. Convicted kidnapper Ted Bundy was in Aspen arguing a motion relating to a first-degree murder trial slated for November. The former University of Utah law student is defending himself on charges he killed Karen Campbell while she was vacationing here two years ago. During a recess in the hearing, Bundy was allowed to go to the law library at the rear of the courtroom on the second floor of the Pitkin County Courthouse. There, the unwatched, uncuffed Bundy went to the window and leapt two stories to freedom. If I were watching a movie and someone jumped from a second floor window to escape, I'd roll my eyes. It is so outrageous. But this actually happened. There were even dents in the lawn below where he hit the ground. Six days later, at two o'clock in the morning, Ted Bundy is recaptured just outside Aspen driving a stolen car. Bundy's week as a fugitive lands him a move from the town jail in Aspen to a solitary confinement cell 40 miles away in Glenwood Springs. His audacious leap for freedom hasn't worked. But even under lock and key in Colorado, his story isn't over. With Bundy behind bars again, I asked Tomas Guillen, author of The Search for the Green River Killer, about the impact Bundy had on King County. Tomas, how did things change in the community after Bundy? Well, I, I think there was a sense of fear. Seattle was changed by Bundy. They became known as a city that sometimes was a little dangerous. The academic community was very leery, and that's the bottom line. The coeds were afraid, people were afraid, so he put fear in a city that really had not felt it before. By the summer of 1982, Ted Bundy's murders in Lake Sammamish are fading in the collective memory of King County. Eight years have passed since his last known abductions, and life is almost back to how it was. Then, in July, a body is found in the Green River. I asked Tomas about the summer of 1982 in Seattle, the beginnings of the Green River killings, and the creeping sense of deja vu in the community. When Green River started, you know, uh, people were wondering what's going on. They found one body, then two bodies, and then suddenly you have three, and that becomes beyond coincidence. Police didn't want to say there was a serial case going on. They found five people 
And people were starting to talk and say, you know, how, how do you get five bodies in the river? To the credit of the Seattle Times where I was working, you know, they assigned people to the story. I was on the story. We wouldn't talk to people on the street and came up with the fact that he was a serial case and we reported it. In the short span of a month in 1982, five young women are found in the Green River, south of Seattle. It doesn't take investigators long to discover that all the women and girls are runaways or sex workers. The victim profile is different from a few years earlier. Right away, there's a distinction between these victims and Ted Bundy's college students. But the result is the same. A serial killer on the loose and bodies turning up in wild areas around Seattle. People are frightened they may have another Bundy on their hands. What they don't know is this time, it will be far worse. Next time, we'll find out how Ted Bundy's time in captivity led to his final frenzied act. And I'll pursue the case of the Green River Killer as it continues to unfold over almost two decades. I'll ask people who were there how another evil killer could not just emerge, but thrive in King County so soon after Bundy. Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.